Well, hey there, Todd. We're back again. Really enjoyed your story of Joan Turner and the Thanatology Foundation. But I'm looking forward to the, the next story about the year 1982. Well, thanks, Rob. Um, as we continue this um, kind of a psychological autopsy uh, on uh, my life, again, thank you. Um, I, I'm still pinching myself that we're actually doing this. Um, so I hope that we're giving your listeners something uh, of interest. So the Turner uh, mortuary thing, um, we were uh, extremely busy at that funeral home, you know, and, and actually our system, and I've taught this now for years, was, uh, for instance, we had no meltdowns at that funeral home. There was no high drama. There were no theatrics around the funeral home, none, right? Because the system, we didn't, we didn't, um, we didn't wait for people to die and then decide what we're, you know, what we were going to do. So we had a system and the system eliminated the drama of where you know, uh, staff was having a meltdown because two families show up at the same time because they didn't use the system, right? And, and the system wasn't perfect, but I'll give you an example of this. And your listeners might disagree with this at all. Uh, I, I might disagree with all of it. But Turner's system was time conscious. Turner's system was based upon so many minutes in a day to get services completed. So we, so I'll give you an example. I worked with a funeral home that was doing 800 calls a year and they let families, their policy was anytime a family wanted a funeral would be when the funeral was gonna be, all right? So you could have three funerals at 10 o'clock Right, so that funeral home, because they let families pick their funeral time anytime, they had five hearses, right? They, and, and sometimes they had to call a livery service for a sixth hearse because all five hearses were being used at exactly the same time and they're running out of cars, right? That is um, a system but it caused un, unbelievable levels of stress within the staff. The staff would have meltdowns. The staff would uh, be moody, grumpy uh, because of the pressure uh, that they were under, all right? That was not present at the Turner Mortuary. We had two hearses, we had two vans, we had two limousines and two sedans and we, could basically get 800 services done, right? Because the system was, we had set funeral times, right? Uh, and, the, and the set funeral times were 9, 10.30, noon, 1.30, and 3. So you could not get a 2 o'clock funeral at the Turner Mortuary. You get a 1.30 funeral, you get a 3 o'clock funeral, but you couldn't have a 2 o'clock because 
the rationale and it worked really, really well. Remember last time I said, we were doing 55% of the funerals in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. There were six other funeral homes that split up 45% of the other calls. So we would use uh, equipment, first set of equipment would run on nine o'clock funeral. That equipment would be back ready to go for the noon funeral, three hours. The second set of equipment would start the 1030 funeral. They'd be back at 1.30, three hours. The noon equipment would be back for the three o'clock funeral. And let's say we had funeral uh, that we knew the cultural nuances, the family, the religious organizations were gonna take more than a couple hours for a funeral, then the funeral time was three o'clock, right? Because they could take as much time as they wanted to, right? They could take, they could run a five hour funeral and we'd be going to the cemetery with the headlights on. Now, it's a different day today, but my point being is that the Turner Mortuary had this system and the people, the people that loved the system was the general public because there was no running, there was no panic time uh, when we were uh, busy at the funerals. So the, the mortuary was a tremendous experience to see how smoothly, and that was John Turner's motto. The Turner funerals were to be run smoothly. There was no grandstanding. There was no, look at me, I'm the funeral director, right? I'm the orchestrator here. I'm the conductor of the orchestra, none of that, right? John, John really liked to go under the radar screen on funerals uh, because he wanted the funeral to be about the dead person and he wanted it to be equally about the living. Uh, and I, I personally and professionally thought he was spot on with it uh, in looking at how other funeral homes uh, behave at times uh, when it comes to grandstanding. And, you know, I want to push the casket. I want to drive the hearse uh, over here. Look at me. That, that was not part of the system at Turner's. And so that experience was uh, one of the great uh, watermarks of my life. I sat down, we, there were, there were basic, and here's another one. They didn't let just anybody make funeral arrangements. There were two and a half people on Turner's staff that made funeral arrangements. John, John Turner was the half a person, right? Right. You know, when the rich and the famous would die in Cedar Rapids, he would go in act like, you know, we would be making the arrangements for him, right? Uh, but then John Wilkinson was the funeral director and I was funeral director. So between John Wilkinson and myself, we would see about 800 families uh, annually, 400 apiece. Um, and it worked really smoothly. Also, John was very attuned to if you did not like embalming, if you if you you were licensed as an embalmer, but you weren't interested in gauges of needles and indexes of fluid 
and rubber hoses and porta boys, you weren't interested in any of that, you were not going to go in the embalming room, all right? Because his experience was if you have embalmers that don't like to embalm, the bodies aren't going to look all that good. The bodies are going to look a lot better when you have somebody who is deeply committed and interested in the subject of embalming, right? I think that makes perfect sense. Now, we were doing 800 calls a year, so we were certainly not a mom and pop operation. But my point being is, is that the bodies look good. The other thing, and, and, and again, I didn't mean to go off on Turner's, um, the system was so damned. Now, it didn't work all the time, right? So did we have mistakes on funerals? Yes, right? We forgot to bring a body to the church one time, right? The hearse shows up at the church, and we forgot, left the body back at the funeral. All right, so, so I don't want anybody to think that this was the perfect system, but it was a system. Here's another one. Um, we had this thing so wired that we asked the families, and I didn't work all the time to bring the clothes in that they wanted to use uh, at the time of arrangements, or we would offer to go get the clothing. We wanted the clothing as soon as possible. And here's why we did it. Because the minute a family chose a casket, we would take the card out of that casket and take it to the prep room, give it to the embalmers, the embalmers had the clothes. The, if it was a lady, the hair was already done. They dress that body while we're finishing up arrangements, right? While I'm tallying up the financial aspects of the funeral. And we had a red light in the, under the desk. And when that body was in a stateroom, the embalmers would hit that red light. And before the family left, I would say, would you like to go see your mother? Right. They were they and the families loved it. Right. I mean, it was it was just absolutely. And the other funeral home that used to do that was A.W. Miles up in Toronto. Uh, Rennie Graham uh, told me that years ago that uh, they did the same thing. Right. So it was it was an interesting funeral home. All right. So everything's moving along pretty well. And um, I've got this thing in the back of my head that Jackson had told me. Remember, this is kind of the period where I called him up and told him that I'd gone to a grief seminar. And then dead silence. And his response is, why are you going to grief seminars? Why aren't you teaching them? Right Now, I, I have to tell you, I was so insecure as a young man that it took me a couple of years to figure this out because I was the slow boy in the class. And um, so in the midst of this, the marriage, the marriage begins to go down. Now there's all kinds of reasons why this happened. And it's 40 years ago. All right. But the end result of this is that um, the marriage collapsed. Now, we had a, a boy, a little boy, who was at that time three years old, right? And so the end result of this is I was not able 
to do any night work, right? Because when this got started, it became evident that I would be the custodial parent because um, her new goals in life was to relocate to another state. Now, now this has happened to thousands of people, right? Thousands of people. So I'm not eliciting any kind of compunction for sympathy. As a matter of fact, to be quite candid with you, you know, I've often said to myself, I would leave me if I could, right? Right, right, because I can be a pain in the ass at times uh, and uh, difficult. So looking back at it, um, there was uh, there was reasons why this marriage uh, fell apart, and I was culpable uh, and have to take responsibility for my deficiencies as a uh, husband, as a um, uh, as a mature human being. I, I've I've thought to myself there should be a federal law that you can't get married until you're 35, right? Right. So, so anyway, in the midst of this, I knew that Iowa was going to come to a close, right? Because at the Turner Mortuary, uh, if you were a funeral arranger, right? And a family wanted to, if we got a house call, that this is just how we did it. If we got a house call at one o'clock in the morning, the question on the phone was, would you, would you, would you like to start making arrangements now? And we didn't do it over the phone, right? John Turner expected us to get our fannies out of bed, put a suit on and drive over to the residence where the dead body was and meet the team that's going to make the removal. And if the family wanted to make arrangements, at one o'clock in the morning, that's when we made funeral arrangements, right? So this, the idea was immediate. John Turner had the, he said, it's a ministry on demand. It's a ministry on demand. These people aren't going to probably go back to sleep. They've got questions on their mind and you need not to do this over the telephone unless they want to, right? That kind of thing. So I knew right then that um, being not divorced, right? We had divorced funeral directors on staff, uh, but we had no male divorced funeral directors who had custodial care of a three-year-old, right? And, and this was 1982. And I, maybe some of your listeners will know men who had custodial care of a three-year-old in 1982. Um, but I, I didn't know any of them and none of them were connected to the funeral home. So I sent out letters and I sent out letters to every mortuary college in the United States. Um, and so it was Christmas time. It was about uh, 40 years ago this time of the year, it was a Sunday afternoon and I got a call from Emory James, who was at that time, the president of the Pittsburgh Institute 
of mortuary science. And he said he wanted me to fly to Pittsburgh to interview for this job. And I, I just couldn't believe it, right? I mean, I, I thought nobody would give me the time of day. Um, and so I flew after the Christmas holiday to Pittsburgh. And Bob Mayer, Bob Mayer, who is the editor, was the editor of the embalming textbook, was there. Uh, Anthony Musmano was there. Uh, and Emory James was there. Now, the mortuary school in 82 was on Forbes Avenue. It was in a big old green mansion, right? It was a big old house, right? So they offered me this job. And they offered me $21,000 a year. And I thought, okay, I was scared to death, right? Because now it is not just, am I facing single parenthood? I didn't know how to cook. I never did laundry. You know, my mother did all of that. And then I got married and it was kind of chauvinistic, right? I was kind of, kind of embarrassed to say that. But, you know, I came out of this Iowa uh, farm situation. And so I get back to uh, Cedar Rapids and I get another call. And the, uh, this calls from David Fitzsimmons at Cincinnati College of Mortuary Science. And he wanted me to come interview, but Cincinnati wouldn't pay for the flight, all right? And I drove from Cedar Rapids, Cincinnati, and went to the mortuary school, had moved from Reading Road to Edgecliff College at Victory Parkway. And it was nice. And I went over, I remember the interview. It was much different than Pittsburgh, right? Uh, the interview was they had me, I was going to be the embalming instructor. See, that was the job. And Cincinnati was doing a lot of embalming, a lot. And um, so they had this kind of a test about how would I seal up a cranial autopsy, all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, but it was thorough. And uh, so I remember, though, walking over on Edgecliff's campus. And I went over by Emory Museum, little an old mansion on the grounds, and I and it was over. I was up on this cliff, hence the term Edge Cliff, and I was looking over the Ohio River, and it was absolutely gorgeous. And I, and right then and there, I, I I I looked at Northern Kentucky, I looked at downtown Cincinnati. It was just gorgeous. I, there wasn't a thing about it I didn't like. And I said right then and there, um, this is where we're going to go. And then I went in and <laughs> after I made the decision, this is where I was going to take my son. I went in, we started talking salary, and they were going to offer me $10,000 a year. Half of what Pittsburgh was offering. And I took the Cincinnati job. And I took the Cincinnati job because of that emotional connection. Uh, and still to this day, I went up to Cincinnati last weekend to see the Nutcracker. And still to this day, 
it's the best city I ever lived in in my life. Uh, it's, uh, there wasn't a thing about that city I didn't like. And so I got started at Cincinnati and I was teaching embalming. And I thought I knew something about embalming until I started to teach it and then started to look at the cases that the mortuary school ended up getting. And I say this with affection for all the Cincinnati funeral directors, because most of them are dead now uh, that were alive 40 years ago when I was there. Uh, the mortuary school got every case the Cincinnati embalmers didn't want to do, right? If the, if the, if the funeral home, so we got every uh, decom. We got every homicide, we got every suicide, we got every infant, automobile accidents, you, you name it. In fact, we never mixed fluid. We never used less than 36 index fluid. I never mixed less than eight ounces a gallon, right? Because of the cases that we had. And I have to tell you, I told the students, you, you soak all this in because you're gonna see cases at this school you will never ever see again uh, for the rest of your life and then in 82 was when we started getting these cases uh, the bodies covered with sar carpi sarcoma uh, they they are skin and bones uh, they've got thrush in their mouth and nobody knew uh, the medical profession was just clueless as to what happened and we were starting to embalm AIDS cases and, and, and hell, we didn't even know that they were HIV positive. Um, so I think there's uh, some more uh, continuation on Cincinnati uh, that we might want to explore in our, our next uh, segment, if that'd be okay, Rob. Oh, for sure, Todd. Yeah, that sounds great. We'll continue on with Cincinnati in our next episode. Thanks for this, Todd. Thank you, Rob.